let's uh, turn again then to the book of Daniel and chapter 3. On page 1022. Daniel chapter 3 and the words of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 25. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like a son of God. I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like a son of God. Now, over the last eight two weeks, we've seen the significant of, significance of the image that Nebuchadnezzar built in order to be worshipped. And we saw this morning particularly the pressure that was on these three young men just simply to bow down for themselves and for the sake of the cause that they were advancing. There were pressures on them to bow down, but of course, uh, we all know that they didn't. They didn't yield famously. They stayed loyal. Uh, they went along with the process as far as they possibly could, out of a combined sense, I suppose, of courtesy and duty. But when the time came to act or not to act, they did what was right. They stood. Uh, they stood literally, and they stood spiritually. Now, it's quite possible that uh, maybe they hoped that nobody would notice. Maybe God would protect them like that. Uh, God certainly can do such things. He mysteriously smote the men of Sodom with a kind of blindness so that they weren't able to find Lot's door. It's quite possible for God to divert the attention of the people away from these three Sometimes we can look for things like that or hope for things like that, but God's deliverances aren't always like that. And it's God's will that matters go further. I suppose, too, they might have thought, well, three out of a thousand or a couple of thousand people, we might not even be noticed. Maybe more people will stand. Maybe there will be a mass protest. Who knows? but there was only three. And of course, they were spotted. And I don't think the Bible allows us to think that they were spotted by chance. The way that the accusation is brought to the king against them makes us think that people had their eyes on them from the beginning and were determined to see what they would do. And I think that comes out in the kind of accusation that's made. We're told in verse 8 that certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Now, the spirit of the accusation is something else because uh, the word used here is a, a rather unusual word, which means it comes from being torn in pieces or 
even eating pieces. The idea is tearing up and consuming. Psalm 27, to eat my flesh, my enemies rose. The idea is devouring. In other words, the accusation made here is a slanderous one. Now, I don't mean slanderous in the, I suppose, technical sense of a false accusation, but slander in its wider sense of a malicious accusation. In other words, the issue is not so much whether it's true, it's simply the intent. They enjoyed the fact that it was true, and they couldn't wait to bring the report about these three men to Nebuchadnezzar. That reminds us, of course, that the truth can be spoken with evil intent. And there are many people who do evil, and the excuse is that it was the truth that we said. It was only the truth I was speaking. When I said such and such about such and such, I spoke the truth. Well, you spoke the truth. But what was your intention in speaking the truth? After all, we're told about love in 1 Corinthians 13 that it rejoices not in iniquity, and even if it does rejoice in the truth, it does not seek harm. It does not seek hurt. And if there is something you know, and it would hurt to share it, even if it is the truth, you are not warranted to share it, unless there is a compelling reason why you should. So that the fact that you speak the truth doesn't justify you, always doesn't justify what you said in a temper. It doesn't justify what you did maliciously. This was a malicious accusation. Again, you'll notice the content of it. In verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These men have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image. If these three statements are to be taken separately, two of them are true, one of them is not. They always have paid due regard to the king. They're presenting it as though it is a kind of habitual conduct on the part of these three men when it very evidently wasn't. It's true that they didn't serve the gods. It's true that they didn't bow down before the image, which I understand to be an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. But it's the descriptive term, these Jews. People can still speak about other people with that kind of expression. Jews particularly, perhaps. It's not unusual for people to speak of Jews in that kind of way. These Jews, whom, they said, you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And they didn't like that. Not at all. They were xenophobic themselves. And they didn't like Nebuchadnezzar's policy of just promoting people who were extremely able. As far as they were concerned, these people were occupying a position that they could be occupying themselves. It's terrible when you see everything through green lenses. And when you're consumed with jealousy, it really corrodes the soul. And Christians need to watch out regarding jealousy. Saul became a tragic character at the end of his life. And it seems that the one thing that ultimately destroyed him was that he couldn't bear David being exalted above himself. That is it. Even in the eulogy which David himself sings, he praises Saul's character as much as to acknowledge that what really destroyed the man 
was his jealousy towards David himself. It can destroy you too. It can bring you low. It can bring you down. It can destroy you inside and mar your witness. Just to be jealous of others. Well, they were intensely jealous of these Jews who don't give you due regard. When Nebuchadnezzar hears it, I suppose you could say that the effect is predictable. It's okay to acknowledge that he's been seriously humbled twice already. He has been. But as I said in the morning, it's one thing to be humbled. It's another thing for your pride to be broken altogether. There are many people I've seen in life who have been humbled, but their pride has not been broken. They just got up the next day and put things together bit by bit. And if anything, they were more proud than they were before. And it's obvious that whatever Nebuchadnezzar learned temporarily, he learned nothing on a permanent basis. He's not a changed man. He's not converted. He hasn't become like a little child. He hasn't received the kingdom of God. He may have fallen prostrate in a moment, in admiration and in awe before Daniel. But he still couldn't bring himself to seek Daniel's God and to subject himself to Daniel's God. And the very building of this image is a reminder that as far as he's concerned, he's still God himself and master of his own destiny and of his own kingdom. And so he's in a paroxysm of rage and fury. The two words are used in the, Hebrew, in the Aramaic. The two words are used furious beside himself with rage. And yet at the same time, it seems that he acknowledges that there's something in these men that is different. He personally examined them at the end of their three-year university education. He personally examined them and found them head and shoulders above the rest. And he doesn't just want to deal with it like that. Is it true, he says, that you've done this? And what's more, as well as saying, is it true, and giving them a second chance, um, as well as saying, is it true, he gives them a second chance. The music will play again. And if you fall down, good and well. If not, it is the burning, fiery furnace. I suppose there's, there's a way in which that adds to the pressure on these young men to fall. If you think about it. It adds to the pressure. In other words, I suppose they could say something like this. Well, when all said and done, at least we've made our mark. We've made our protest. We stood. And everybody knows what we think regarding bowing down before the image. Now let's get the thing done and get on with it. But of course, famously, that's not what they say. We have no reason, they said, to answer you in this matter. Some suggest that that's disrespectful. That's just to misunderstand the language. It means we have no case to prepare. There's no, we don't need to think, think about the answer. We don't need to think. We haven't been misunderstood, really. We haven't been misrepresented. The fact of the matter is that we stood and we meant to stand. We will not serve your God's and neither will we bow down before your image. But having said that, um, the words that they use are great words, are they not? Our God, whom we serve, 
is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. These words aren't spoken with a defiant spirit. Just a spirit of steadfastness, that's all. A spirit of resolution and a spirit of faith. We're safe in God's hands. He's able to deliver us from the furnace. He's able to stop us being cast into it. He's able to keep us inside it. He's able to extricate us out of it. What's more, in the highest and profoundest sense, he will deliver us from your hand. In other words, you can destroy our bodies, but you have no power to destroy ourselves. God will deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. And the fact of the matter is that although you have said which God can deliver you from my hands, we are not, King Nebuchadnezzar, in your hands at all. We are in the hands of God. And if God chooses for us not even to go into the furnace, good and well, if he chooses us to go into it, good and well, either way, we'll get out of it. And in any case, we're just not doing it. That's all. Whatever you say, whatever you do, we're not doing it. We are serving God. And that is the end of that. It was too as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned. If he was in a paroxysm of rage and fury, we're now told that his fury just burst out and he couldn't restrain it. It was let loose and it was written on his face. His countenance changed towards Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Maybe there was something in him that was kind of partial towards them, obviously, willing to give them a second opportunity. But this time, he's just let loose. You know, tyrants can be like that. You still see that in tyrants. I mean, look at the tyrant in North Korea. I mean, don't cross him. He could quite literally just blow you to bits for his entertainment. He commands the furnace to be heated seven times more than usual. There's no need to be pedantic about that. People will say, oh, if you're a biblical literalist, you believe it was exactly seven times hotter. That's rubbish. Literalists believe in idioms and forms of expression. Seven times hotter just means, well, what we would mean when we said ten times hotter. It's just a phrase. In other words, make it as hot as you can. That's all that it means to a literalist as well as to anybody else. Bind them in their clothes, their official clothes for this occasion. Bind them tight, hand and foot. And he gets some strong men in his army to do exactly that. Why he gets these people to do it? Is he expecting resistance? Is he somehow afraid of these men? I don't know. But he chooses strong, able men to bind them. And then they are carried out because they have to be carried. They can't move, never mind walk, and they are cast into the furnace. Now, these furnaces are common enough in Babylon. They would smelt iron, but more often they were used 
uh, for baking bricks. Stones are scarce in Babylon, and they would bake bricks. I think I mentioned recently that pretty much every brick that's been found in ancient Babylon has been stamped with the name of Nebuchadnezzar himself. They were baked in these uh, kilns, and um, often up to 1,000 degrees Celsius. People reckon that it may have risen to about 1,300 degrees Celsius. They looked like a a raised kind of tunnel uh, with an opening at the top and uh, visibility through at least one side of the tunnel. Uh, There's no real certainty as to whether this was built for punishment. Uh, Even the Assyrian records, which preceded the Babylonian ones, contain um, fiery furnace punishments uh, for people who are uh, treason, guilty of treason against the king or against the state. Babylonian records have come up with the same. But whether they were special kilns or just the ordinary kilns used for baking bricks, well, who really knows? There's not complete certainty about exactly how they worked because the archaeological evidence isn't clear enough. All we know from here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell essentially into the furnace. We know that the flames belched out when the door was opened with such severity that the blast killed the couple of people who were carrying them, or the three people who were carrying them, What's more, we know that they were somehow visible to the king. The king was able to see inside the furnace. And what's more, the furnace was of such a size that the men were able to walk inside it. That's all. But it's enough, of course. It's quite staggering that the heat blast killed the men who were dropping them into the hole. But the men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, themselves were cast inside, bound hand and foot. I think it's worth remembering that these things were visible to people. Uh, We're told that in verse 27. It's quite an interesting thing that the satraps, the administrators, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw the men on whose bodies the fire had no power, the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. Now, the list of officials is not quite as exhaustive in that verse as it is in every other verse where they're mentioned. So it may be that only some of these officials were there, but the point is that it was public. They saw the men go in, and they saw the men come out. And the miracle that was done was not just done for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It wasn't just done for the encouragement of all the Jews who dwelt in the land of Babylon. It wasn't just done for Nebuchadnezzar, but it was done for all the government officials from every corner of the empire. This thing was not done in a corner. But the amazing thing is that Nebuchadnezzar becomes conscious, looking in, that things are not the way they should be. When he looks inside the furnace, he is staggered at three things. First, There are four people where he expected to find three. Second, these four people are loose. None of them are bound. And last of all, none of them show any signs of being affected in the slightest by the fire. 
they are not heard. Four people loose, unhurt, where he expected three people bound and dead. Clearly, it's a miracle. But like every other miracle in the Bible, it's a teaching aid. It's a teaching device. The question for us is, what is the message? What's being taught here? Can you expect if you're thrown into a fire to be delivered out of it? Yes and no. Let's begin with the fire. What is it? Or what does it represent? Well, most of you would know the answer to that pretty much instinctively. Peter says, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. All our trials can be described as fire. They test us. If we're right, they purify us, as we'll see later on. But we feel them. We feel them like fire. And by trials, I mean the general trials of life. But I also mean the afflictions that particularly come because we believe in Christ. What Paul refers to as the afflictions of the gospel. And he spoke of these things when he himself was in chain and in prison. And Timothy was a little scared of the situation that he was getting himself into. And Paul said to him, don't be afraid, but be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Because the gospel brings affliction in this present world. It must do. There's the fire of persecution, which it brings into your life. And because you're a Christian, the fiery darts of the wicked one. These are all fires that, by the nature of things, could consume you, kill you, destroy you. Now, in this world you shall have tribulation. So what do you need then? Well, what you need is faith. And what's often overlooked in this passage is the faith of these three men and the relationship between faith and their deliverance. In other words, uh, we're prone to read it and simply to think that they were in a crisis and God delivered them. Well, that's true. But the link between the crisis and the deliverance was faith. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews highlights. Of course, we saw the faith already in the passage when they said, he will deliver us from your hand. In other words, they believe that suppose they burn, they'll still live. Suppose they're reduced to ashes, indistinguishable from the ashes in the furnace. Still, God will deliver them and even raise their bodies. They believe that. That's the faith that they expressed. But the writer to the Hebrews draws attention to it too. Time fails me to tell. We wish in a way that it hadn't. But time fails me to tell, he says, of those who stopped the mouths of lions. Who do you think that is? Must be a reference to Daniel, yes? Because the next expression is, quenched the violence of fire. Who do you think that is? Who is it who quenched the violence of fire by faith? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you've got any doubt about it, I think it is sealed by the fact that the one expression follows the other. The writer is writing, inspired by the Spirit of God, and the history of Israel is passing before his mind, and these great men and women of faith, and he thinks, Daniel, yes, stopped the mouths of lions by faith. And yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego quenched the violence of the fire. The teaching is that their faith did that. It wasn't just that God did that, but that their faith did that. You see that? By faith, they quenched the violence of the fire. So why did the fire not hurt them? Why didn't it light upon them? Why didn't it leave a singe or a smell? Because they believed in God. And they believed in the reality of God's deliverance. And so he extricated them. What's the lesson? Well, what faith did for them in the literal fire of Babylon is a representation of what faith does for you in all the fiery trials that God sends your way. That's it. God delivers from the fire. And there's a link between that deliverance and your faith. Oh yes, friends, uh, he doesn't always give us physical deliverance. Far from it. Uh, Some of us in our foolishness expect these things. We expect an easy ride as Christians. I don't know. I think I've often said to you that I don't know where we get these ideas from, but we've got them. When we become Christians that everything's going to be easy. Even if you've been told a million times that it's not, we still think it is. You'll notice that there's a contrast even in that letter to the Hebrews between those who were kept from trouble and those who were kept inside it. It's a very vivid, in fact, if you can just turn to it for a few seconds, it's, it's worth noticing how stark the contrast is. So if you can keep the page where you're at, but turn to Hebrews 11. 1383, that's page 1383. And in verse 33, he draws attention to certain people who were actually delivered um, from pain and grief altogether. There's a series of them. Through faith in verse 33, they subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. They weren't bitten at all. In other words, they quenched the violence of the fire, not a singe, not a smell. They escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, valiant in battle, and so on. And then you'll notice the stark contrast in verse 36. Others had trials of mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. No deliverance there, was there? Sawn in two. That seems to be a reference to Isaiah the prophet. Jewish tradition records that he was sawn in two by King Manasseh. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword, wandering about in sheepskins, goatskins, destituted, destitute, afflicted, tormented. Some kept from, others kept in. But both are delivered. 
differently delivered, but both are delivered from the fire by God. Now, what faith does in a trial is seen in the experience of these three men. And let me highlight some things. When you exercise faith in a trial, the first thing that's secured is the company of Christ. I see a fourth, and the form of the fourth is like the, which I think is too strong, a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar here is not making any kind of statement about the second person of the Trinity, at least not to his own consciousness. All he is aware of is that there is someone like the gods in the presence of these three men. He calls him later on his angel in verse 28. When he issues the decree, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. And it's given a capital A in the New King James Version. And it's given a capital A for a good reason. I don't think there can be any doubt that it is the angel of the covenant that is present here with these three men. The angel who appeared to Abraham and ate with him, the angel to whom Abraham prayed and who Abraham addressed as Lord, the angel who wrestled with Jacob when Jacob said, I have seen God face to face and I live. This is the angel who went out with Israel in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is the angel who appeared with Moses and gave him the law when it was written by the finger of God, the angel of the covenant, the angel, God in human form, the one who appeared to Samson's parents to announce the birth of a special child. Christ, in what's often referred to as pre-incarnate appearances. Uh, pithily described by the Puritans as Christ in such a hurry to put on human nature that he tried it out once or twice. Uh, of course, it is not incarnation as such, but nonetheless, it is the second person of the Trinity in human form. And who else would take this position? Who else would stand in the fire who else would give the comfort of his presence? Who else? Do you think it's another angel? I don't. I think it is him. And it's very fitting that it should be him. God gives a special presence in the fire when you seek it. When you exercise faith and when you walk into a fire for God's sake or you're cast into it for God's sake, you can expect God to give you a special presence in the fire. It doesn't need to be physical. I don't even know if these three men knew that there was a physical presence with them in the fire. I don't know. I'm not saying they didn't. I'm saying I don't know. They don't need to, really. You'll remember when Elisha was at Dothan and the Syrian army surrounded them. And Elisha's uh, trainee prophet was paralyzed by fear 
And Elisha just said, Lord, open his eyes. And God opened his assistant's eyes, and he saw an angelic army, chariots of fire surrounding the Syrian army. An invisible host. And just for a moment, he saw through the veil. They're always there. The angels of God surround those that do him fear and delivers them. We don't see them. We believe them to be there. But just for a moment, God opened the eyes of this man by faith, and he saw an angelic host. What a staggering sight. Did Elisha see it? I don't think he did. Why? Because he didn't need to. He believed they were there anyway. They were revealed as just an encouragement to that man's faith. But Elisha believed that the angels were there. That's why he said, open, open my servant's eyes. And once we see and believe, we don't need to see again because we believe. And these three don't need to see a physical form. And neither do you. To have the reality of Christ with you, you don't need a physical form. But when the Lord is really close to you in a time of trial, then you will know that to be so. It's a special presence. I think that's what Paul means when he says, Ah, that I might know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. I think that is a special fellowship. It's above the ordinary. It's what comes when we need it. It's what comes when we call upon him for it. And it comes in pain and in grief. If we ask and if we believe, he'll be with us. It's what Isaiah spoke of when he said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. These words were written before these boys went into captivity. Isn't that interesting? And if they cleaved to them as they were being cast into the fire, how much more did they cleave to them afterwards? When God makes a promise real in the fire, when the fire's finished, you enjoy that promise. You enjoy it as you're receiving it, but you enjoy it in reflection too. I knew him. I knew him in the fire. They could say that. Fear not, I am with you. And this presence of God that we enjoy by faith is a presence that brings two things. First of all, it brings with it a sense of God's sympathy. Again, Isaiah the prophet, he says these words. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Isn't that a wonderful statement? In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And in fact, uh, I should read on because uh, to really appreciate and enjoy it, you need to read on. Listen to it. In all their affliction, he, God himself, was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. They've capitalized the A again, rightly so. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. 
in his love and in his pity, he delivered them. And he bore them. And he carried them. All the days of old. In his love and in his pity, he delivered them. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. You know, when Christ comes near to you in your suffering, you know that the one who comes near to you is one who identifies and feels sympathy. And your pain is his. And your grief is his. And he's as close to you as that. Sometimes we think that no one shares our pain and no one identifies and that no one has a sorrow like us. But when he comes close, you know that he does and that he takes your pain as much as you take it yourself. Many a husband has said when they passed through a trial that they knew their wife took the trial even more for the husband's sake. It's a bit like that. You know that the trial is somehow as much on him as it is on yourself. Do you not see it in Stephen when he's being stoned? I've often alluded to this. We get a glimpse of it. Stephen got a glimpse of it. Heaven was open to him. And as the stones hit his body, which was painful, he saw the heavens opened and Christ standing at the right hand of God, where invariably we see him sitting. Here we see him standing. And whatever else is conveyed by that, there's a sense of sympathy. It's as though he's up off his seat and he's looking down. I know and I understand. And inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. The stones were on him, and Stephen knows that. And as well as a sense of sympathy, his presence also gives you a real strength to continue. Grace. And inside that grace, peace and joy. And I think that comes through in the incident with Stephen as well. Because if standing indicates compassion, I think it also fundamentally indicates an intercessory priesthood. Um, when we think of Jesus standing at all at the right hand of God, we think of his priestly work. When we think of his kingship, we think of him sitting. Standing towards the Father, he intercedes. Stephen is given an insight into the Lord helping him there and then. There and then. Helping him to take these rough, brutal stones. And helping him in such a way that he's able to die triumphantly. Because you'll notice that Stephen dies triumphantly. He falls down on his knees purposefully, as the language indicates. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He dies strong. And he dies strong because he got grace. And he got grace from the presence of Christ. And he got the presence of Christ because he believed. And he believed even to the point of death. So if you believe in the fire, that will bring you the presence of Christ. Quickly, the second thing that faith will bring you in the fire is a loosening from your bonds. 
Luke, Nebuchadnezzar said, I see four men loose. Loose. These men were bound. Bound by what? The fetters of Babylon. Which symbolize for us what? Sin. Sinful habits. Tendencies. Unbelief and pride. The two parent sins of the heart and the head. And every other child that flows from that union. But that's one thing that perishes in the fire when you ask for God to bless you in the fire. A real trial believed and endured by faith will unloose the bond of sin. You'll come out of it holier. You'll come out of it a better and a stronger man or woman than you went into it. Because you believed. Nothing was burned. Not a hair on their head except the Babylonian bonds that confined them in the first place. That is all that the devil as such can do to you. You can only lose your chains. All the devil's artillery function at the end of the day like boomerangs if you have faith. They come back with a vengeance against his own kingdom and they do you good. Again, Faith in the fire means that you are ultimately unhurt. They are not hurt, said Nebuchadnezzar. Not even a smell. Now how wonderful is that? But let me say that it's not automatically so. And it's not always so. Sometimes a Christian man or woman. And listen to this. Because I mean this. Sometimes a Christian man or woman can pass through a fire and there's a a whiff of bitterness. Sometimes there's a, a strong and pungent odor of cynicism. Why? Because you didn't believe in the trial. You didn't use the fire as a call to faith. And you didn't really get a hold upon God in the fire at all. And that's why in the fire you had no sense of God's presence and you had no sense of God's grace helping you in a time of need. You had no sense of these things because you didn't exercise faith. What happens then? Well, God has to send you something else. And he just will. Until we learn to believe. Faith is a wonderful grace. It's a wonderful grace. Faith. And we need to learn to exercise it. When we do. It glorifies God. Abraham staggered not in unbelief. But he believed. And gave glory to God. Amazingly. And I close with this. Nebuchadnezzar issues a new decree. Verse 29 of the chapter. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. And then the king promoted 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Extraordinary things are happening, you see. When, when these four young men uh, were removed from where they could have been so useful, it seemed an utter disaster when they were placed in the heart of Babylon. An utter and total disaster. I mean, who reading Providence would have thought, this is a good thing? But God is raising them bit by bit where they are. And even when these dark things come, when they're finished, the result is always the same. Up they come. Move up a level. And here now they're closer still to Daniel in the very heart of the Babylonian Empire. God moves his pieces in place in his own mysterious ways. And as for Nebuchadnezzar, it's another humbling. Um, but staggering things that God's not finished with him yet. You would almost say he was the antichrist of his day. But God will bring him low too. And uh, God's intention is to put him into a furnace too. And uh, he'll come out of it a changed man. May God help us to withstand the fire. He'll deliver us from it. Believe that's your part. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, enable us to quench the violence of the fire and to do so with faith. We pray that we would come forth from our own trials without a smell of burning. And Lord, give us grace to recognize the source of our help. Nothing is ever achieved by might and power in your kingdom, only by your spirit. Help us then to honor you by seeking you and calling upon your name. In the Savior's name, amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 31 on page 243. <clears throat> At verse 21, and the tune is Land of Rest. All praise and thanks be to the Lord, for he hath magnified his wondrous love to me within a city fortified. Babylon certainly is that. For from thine eyes cut off I am, I in my haste had said, my voice yet heardst thou, when to thee with cries my moan I made. Love the Lord, all you his saints, because the Lord doth guard the faithful, and he plenteously doers doth reward. Be of good courage, and he strength unto your heart shall send. All ye whose hope and confidence doth on the Lord depend. The last four stanzas, let's stand and sing. <clears throat> 